Liberty Tabletop is America's flatware company, the only flatware that's manufactured in the U.S. of A. There are over 38 patterns to choose from. Like a couple of patterns and you can't decide, you can order a sample of each. And check out their website at libertytabletop.com and enter the promo code BEN for 15% off all flatware. Just in time for you to freshen up your holiday table setting with Liberty Tabletop Flatware, manufactured in the United States. They make great wedding and Christmas gifts, too. Flatware that can be passed down for generations. So check out their website at LibertyTabletop.com and enter promo code BEN for 15% off all flatware. LibertyTabletop.com, promo code BEN. Welcome to Political Pursuits, the podcast. I'm your host, Lou Ann Anderson, and I am delighted to have you here with me today. We've got a lot of good stuff to talk about. Uh, we're going to be starting off with Greg Abbott, which what can I say? Didn't get to hear all of the news, all of the news um, conference last Friday. What I first tuned in on was hearing Dennis Bonin, which definitely was a black mark against the whole effort right there. The little bit that I did hear, some Q&As didn't sound like anything too exciting. As I started reading up on it later in the day and throughout the weekend, I'm not any more excited with some knowledge than I was Friday when I tuned in with no knowledge and just got some basic impressions. Watching what happened yesterday with oil was so disconcerting, so troubling. You know, we elected Greg Abbott to be our leader. I just don't think any of us expected him to be the one who would lead us into economic ruination, which if something doesn't happen quick, that could be the path on which we have started. Meanwhile, let me run through a couple of things and we'll get more into that. Political pursuits. You can find us on Facebook and I would definitely suggest that you take a look at our Facebook page, like us, follow us. I put up articles that we discuss on um, here in the podcast. I put them up later on Facebook so that you can go through reference, do a deeper dive, read them for yourself. One of the articles I'm going to talk at at the end of this segment has a lot of numbers, and it's something I really think there's some graphs that are attached to it that I really think you'll find, find of interest. So go find us at Political Pursuits, the podcast on Facebook. It's also at Political Suits. And that at Political Peace Suits handle also is what we use on Twitter. Now, if you've got any questions, any concerns, any opinions that you'd like to share, maybe, you know, some interesting articles, other information, please email me at politicalpursuitspod at gmail.com. Also, just in case you're not aware, this podcast is available on most of the popular platforms. That includes Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, but we're also on Deezer, CastBox, Podchaser, and Podcast Addict. So I hope you'll check those out. Greg Abbott. I do have one positive thing to say, and that is that every day over the weekend when I turned on the TV and there was Governor Andrew Como from New York pontificating on his latest wine of the day, and his wines are numerous. It did make me have one positive thought about Texas, and that's that at least Greg Abbott isn't Andrew Como. One of the things that seemed like it's really been um, kind of percolating over these this last week or so because remember how you can watch and the gamesmanship that we track with this show you watch a lot of times different phrases come up remember when dog whistle was on everybody's mind it was the dog whistle and then we've had other things that come through where everybody keeps talking about certain words and you hear it repeated over and over and over again within different media outlets as though the talking points were issued that morning and they incorporated this certain vocabulary and so now all of the talking heads on all of the liberal media, which means almost all of the media, they're using the same verbiage. And complaining about testing, that seems to now be the latest thing that we're hearing about. 
the key complaint at this point is the lack of availability, or at least that's one of the tactics that they're taking with this. And so keeping that in mind, I was um, taken by a column in the New York Post from uh, over the weekend, and it was written by a couple of guys, uh, Eric Adams, who is the Brooklyn Borough President, Justin Brannon, who represents some of the Brooklyn neighborhoods, um, on the city council there. So, you know, basically it's a mayor and a city councilman in the borough of Brooklyn that are writing this. And they talk about how that in a lot of the last weeks, they've had a lot of people contacting their offices, offering to donate masks and other forms of PPE. And they said, considering that all over the news, you hear this, you know, reports of the shortages and at the hospitals and other critical facilities that you would think that the city, the state would happily accept these donations. But they say that in fact, that's not the case, that they have heard numerous stories recounted to them from different suppliers, from different individuals who say that they followed the city and the state guidelines and they've submitted the information of what they have to offer through the proper channels. These guys, you know, they've been well-intentioned oftentimes in wanting to get this PPE into the hands of the people who really need them. And these stories that are being told time and time again, they end with officials telling them, thanks, we're good. You know, here we've all seen those pictures online of the healthcare workers resorting to coffee filters for masks, garbage bags for gowns. Um... And they claim that these guys claim that their hospitals in Brooklyn tell them that that need hadn't gone away. And in fact, in a lot of areas, it's grown. And let's remember, it's not just the hospital workers. We've got grocery clerks, nursing home staff, other frontline workers that are also begging for supplies of these items. Especially since the CDC just told everybody that you need to use face coverings to prevent the spread. In Brooklyn, they've been working to fill the gap where they can, and they have distributed a number of masks to some different um, entities, housing authority, transit workers, school safety agents, but they say that there is no way the demand is so strong they can't, they can't meet it. Also of interest note, now I always get really impatient when you have that crisis at hand, women, minorities, and children hit hardest because that always just has that kind of pandering sense to it. And oftentimes it is, in fact, pandering when, you know, something bad happens. Oftentimes, as in the case of this pandemic, it can cut across lines. However, there are there is an interesting um, side issue, side note, that is, is emerging out of this. And the information, the demographics coming out of New York are showing that the widespread shortage of this PPE affects us all, but that communities of color are especially vulnerable to the dangers. Now, they're not saying this just to be pandering, just as social justice warriors, power to the people, we've got to have all this equality. No, this is data that was released by the City Department of Health, and it revealed that confirmed cases and deaths resulting from COVID-19 are largely concentrated in black and brown communities. And it makes sense when you think about the socioeconomic conditions in which these people live. Many of these people live in neighborhoods that don't have the luxury of telecommuting. They're the ones who are responding to our 911 calls. They're driving the buses. They're operating the subways. They're scanning the groceries. They're out there still on the frontline trenches, similar to those healthcare workers. They're at the first line of being exposed, and it's impacting them. Our two Brooklyn guys say that when we deny these people the means to protect themselves and others, we're sending a clear message that while our city might deem them essential, we really think they're expendable. They also go on to note that even during times of calm, the procurement rules governing these New York bureaus are a Byzantine mess causing bureaucratic headaches that can take weeks and months to resolve. During a time of emergency, the time windows are drastically shortened, which is important because with this virus, every minute counts, yet it doesn't seem 
like the city and the state have adjusted their protocols to adapt to the new reality. It's also important to note that while these people need to relax their procurement rules during this time in order to expedite getting this much-needed materials to the frontline workers, it's also important to note that not all of the PPE is um, procured or donated through the state. Most, most health care facilities have an infection prevention team to conduct quality testing on supplies before they're released to frontline staff. And so with that, as long as it meets their needs as per this committee, private institutions can accept goods from wherever. So that's something to think in mind. If you've got some kind of masks or some kind of PPE gowns or something that you were thinking about trying to get to some of the frontline workers, don't necessarily look that you're going through your city or your state's your only option. Go to that local hospital. See what means they have to accept those things. Or better yet, if you know somebody who works there, maybe talk with them to get it into their hands and they can take it and put it in, into good hands. You know, the point with this is it's not like we need to let up on the standards of someone inspecting these, uh, these items to ensure that they're okay. Remember all the defective stuff that China sent. And even if this stuff may not seem to be coming from China, the fact is it still could be and it could be defective. So it's important that it be well inspected before it's actually distributed. But at the same time, we do have some means by which to try and expedite and if we have to work around government to get these peoples in the hands. Allowing the stockpiles of equipment that, from legitimate suppliers to languish in warehouses isn't responsible. The biggest lie that we've been told for weeks is that the shortage of PPP is an immutable reality, something that can't be fixed. But if the calls, if the anecdotal evidence that these guys have been hearing for these last weeks is any indication the supply is out there and cities and states have just yet to efficiently tap in on it. They conclude just saying that if we're going to overcome this pandemic, it's time we stop letting red tape cost us more lives. So we have all of this equipment that's being held up, the PPE, the tests, is being number one gripe of the left of how Trump is doing such a bad job handling this pandemic. The next thing that we have on the list of gripes against President Trump, and there really is such another word I want to be using that so much better describes this than gripe. But anyway, we'll stick with gripe. We're keeping this at least PG rated. Another Democratic gripe is that the feds need to pay for this test. You can't expect all the states to be doing this. And who is the biggest complainer whatsoever of exactly this? The guy you get to see every morning on your TV about 11 a.m. Central, none other than New York Governor Andrew Como. Here he's helped usher his state into the economic ruination that we're trying to <laughs> discourage Greg Abbott from taking us into. New York State's in bad shape. New York City is in bad shape. In fact, New York City is in such bad shape that E.J. McMahon, who is a, a policy analyst, I've read him for years in City Journal, which is put out by the Manhattan Institute. He's also a research director for another think tank that's um, called Empire Center, focuses on, on New York policy. But he is quoted as saying that this the local economic outlook in New York is the grimmest on record. That de Blasio was supposed to aim trim spending this year uh, to $97.4 billion this year, $89.3 billion next year based on estimates of a 3.5% drop in tax revenues through June and 8.3% drop in 2021. That could sound bold, except that actually, according to the city's independent budget office, when you look at the things he does, the tricks for balancing the books, it turns out that his plan actually increases city funding slightly. 
after years of the soaring budgets under Mayor de Blasio, the city funded outlays for 2020 rose 32 percent and the payroll headcount is up 12 percent to the highest level in recent history. So you've got these guys that while things are falling down around them and here this testing is touted as the answer for trying to get past the crisis portion of this pandemic and at least start returning to people to some degree of functionality. And they're whining that they don't have enough money, but they also aren't even gracious enough to consider cutting their own budgets. Now, the state is mad. They're still holding the grudge from the Trump tax cuts back early in his, his term. And those tax cuts, one of the things that they did was they had that SALT provision, which was the state and local tax provision where they eliminated these high state or high tax blue states that have their local state income taxes and property taxes. They used to, those states used to could claim a deduction for those. Liberty Tabletop is America's flatware company. The only flatware that's manufactured in the U.S. of A. There are over 38 patterns to choose from. Like a couple of patterns and you can't decide, you can order a sample of each. And check out their website at libertytabletop.com and enter the promo code BEN for 15% off all flatware. Just in time for you to freshen up your holiday table setting with Liberty Tabletop Flatware, manufactured in the United States. They make great wedding and Christmas gifts, too. Flatware that can be passed down for generations. So check out their website at LibertyTabletop.com and enter promo code BEN for 15% off all flatware. LibertyTabletop.com, promo code BEN. Ah, feel the woe with Listerine at BJ's. You can save $2.50 now on Listerine products like Total Care Anti-Cavity Fluoride Fresh Mint Mouthwash or Cool Mint Pocket Packs Fresh Breath Strips at your nearest BJ's location. Experience the feeling of a million germs zapped in seconds with Listerine. Discount available through December 24th. Save now only at BJ's. Those taxes on their federal income tax, meaning that those of us in states like Texas and Georgia and Arizona, we were picking up the tab for those people, for those residents, a portion of their federal taxes because they were getting the write-off because they have greedy local politicians who hose them down so much at the local and state level. Just an, int an, an interesting side note of how skewed things are in New York. When de Blasio took office in 2014, he was the first mayor since Lindsay, John Lindsay to not inherit a fiscal crisis from his predecessor. That's because Mike Bloomberg, not my favorite guy, but we'll give him his due, took actions in his third term to control spending. As the financial crisis hit in 2008, Bloomberg did something quite reasonable. He told the city's workforce, mainly teachers and other civilians, that if they couldn't find savings to pay for raises, they, like everyone else in the private sector, wouldn't get raises. Sounds reasonable to me. Well, when de Blasio came back in, he could not stand that that had happened. So, in May 2014, he awarded the first of $2.9 billion in retroactive raises to teachers and civilian workers as part of a general $15.2 billion wage hike through 2018. Even in the greatest tax revenue boom, though, that the city had ever seen, de Blasio de Blasio could actually afford to pay those teachers that extra money for which they had done the work five years before. So what did he do? He stretches the retroactive pay out to 2021. And that fiscal year starts this July. So think about it. In the midst of all of this chaos, all of this economic turmoil that has been created now by this pandemic, people are wondering how they're going to make ends meet via their New York local taxes, they are going to be splashing out $1.5 billion for work teachers and other city employees did as far back as 11 years ago. So this is the kind of dysfunction we're dealing with. And you need to remember these kinds of stories when Andrew Como sits there on TV and 
whines because, well, the states need to help pay for our testing. We can't do that by ourselves when they already had dropped the ball on being prepared with the respirators, with their PPE. What have these people done right? That's the thing. Email me. Email me at politicalsuitspod at gmail.com if we can think of something that New York has done right besides just oversee a slow drive that's now been been sent into light speed with this pandemic, but a slow drive and now light speed into complete economic chaos. Which brings me to the last thing that I want to talk about this segment, and I think this is fascinating. A guy named Matt Margulis from PJ Media, he says he lives in New York, New York State, but he lives in West New York, Western New York. That's not New York City. That's not downstate. And he said, if you ask anyone from downstate, they are New Yorkers. He said, but he's not. So there's definitely the New Yorker, the downstate people. They kind of see themselves as a separate entity from the rest of of the state. Okay, that's okay. New York, though, downstate, New York City, that's the hot spot when it comes to this virus. And New York as an entire state, is only listed as a hot spot because of downstate. Upstate's New York, uh, New York's coronavirus situation pales compared to downstate. You know, but New York City, you got to think about it as we just talked. It was de- doomed due to the incompetence of local officials. But also you have the population density, which no doubt is a huge factor. It's been a huge factor in Europe as well. And then the subway system. For weeks, I keep thinking, why would any person who had any choice get in that subway system when this thing is spreading as it is, has the degree of contagion that it does? And you go and you get in this metal tube with 200 people that you don't know and the likelihood that a certain percentage of them has that, and you're there in complete close proximity. How does that make sense? It doesn't. But anyway, Marlis uh, contends that he's thought for weeks, maybe we should count downstate New York separately from the rest of the country. And so he proceeded to divide it out and do that. I want you to go on Facebook. I'm going to have this, I'm going to have this, um, posted and he has a graphic that shows the area of New York that he is tracking in the numbers that I'm getting ready to go over with you in relationship to the rest of the country and it's just jaw-dropping. For his purposes, downstate New York, he's including New York City, Long Island, and the Hudson Valley and that includes the counties of Kings, Queens, New York, Suffolk, Bronx, Nassau, Westchester, and Richmond. Now, together, these counties have a population of over 12 million people, which is bigger than a lot of countries. So, he went and started compiling some numbers here. First thing he did was went through and compiled data for the top 30 countries with the most cases of coronavirus. Okay, this is the top 30 countries that are reporting the most cases. His ranking went ahead and listed them by cases per capita, which is per million people. In doing that, Spain came in number one with basically 4,100 cases per million people in the state. I'm sorry, in the country. Spain is number one with 4,100 people per million. Belgium comes in number two, Switzerland number three. Now remember, these are worldwide countries with the most cases reported. So we have Spain, Belgium, Switzerland, Italy, Ireland, France. The United States comes in seventh at 2,100 cases per million. So we're roughly half of what Spain at number one is, that's where we are at number seven. Portugal, the Netherlands, and the UK round this out. So, 
from looking at that, the first thing you can see is that, well, you know, the United States, for everything we hear on CNN or MSNBC, that we are leading the way in the world with all of these cases. When you go and and take down national populations to an apples-to-apples comparison, you do it on a per capita basis, no, we're not. Spain's up there, and then there's another five people, and we come in at number seven. And that's if you include downstate New York. Let's take downstate New York and make it an entity of his own. Comrade de Blasio would love that, wouldn't he? So we're going to take them out of the mix. They're 12 million people. And we're going to see how that affects this ranking. When you take downstate New York and list it and it's 12 million people as their own entity, for cases reported, they come in at number one with 16,000 cases per million people. I did some, I looked at that number again this morning and I took and I just did some quick math using some numbers off of the Epic Times and that number holds. That number is a valid number. Downstate New York, 16,000 cases per million residents. Spain comes in number two. Do you remember how many cases they had per million? 25% of that. They have 4,100 cases. So downstate New York in and of itself has four times more cases than Spain does when you bring it down apples to apples. Again, we have Belgium, Switzerland, Italy, Ireland, France, Portugal, the Netherlands, UK. Oh, wait a minute. Somebody's missing from that list. Yeah, The top 10, there's somebody missing, namely who? The United States. We don't show up in that ranking until number 13. But according to our media, we are leading the world in cases. Now, the other side of this too is that you can look at it and say, well, the cases, because there are discrepancies in testing, the cases aren't necessarily the best way to go about this. So let's look at the fatality rate. When we go in there, Belgium comes in. Again, this is per capita. Belgium comes in highest with 470 fatalities per million people. Spain, Italy, France, UK, Netherlands, Switzerland follow. U. United States comes in at number eight with, again, 25% basically of what Belgium had. We're at 112 people per million residents. Ireland and Portugal round that out. Let's do the same thing again. Let's make New York the state of its own. Again, this is what we're doing here with fatalities, deaths per capita, deaths per million residents. Number one, downstate New York with 848 deaths per million residents. Number two, Belgium. And once again, nearly half of that, 470 deaths per capita. Again, we follow kind of the similar order. Spain, Italy, France, UK, Netherlands, Switzerland, Sweden, and Ireland. Once again, who's missing? Ah, the U.S. We don't even make it in the top 10 on this. We're at number 11. Let's also remember that in this mix, what we have is important, but what we don't have is important. Who's not in this mix? China, Russia, Iran. All three of those could very easily take a slot in the, in the top 10, thus pushing us down, potentially even out of the top 15. So, for many of us who have grave concerns over this, although our concerns are actually kind of starting to inch more toward the economy than the the virus itself, this is some interesting information to keep in track. If the media ever chose to look at the numbers the way we have just here, they'd see that an overwhelming majority of the country is doing much, much better than it appears when you include down and when you include downstate New York as a separate entity within our numbers the media wants you they want you to believe that president trump botched this whole federal government response it's politics and it's high stakes politics 
Even with downstate's tallies, we don't lead the world in cases or in deaths per capita. So treating downstate as its own country shows that local leadership, mitigation, containment, those are the type things that here at a local level we need to do, and we can do those to get our communities better shored up, our economies better shored up, and move forward from this nightmare. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we will be back on the other side, and we're going to talk uh, WHO, uh, World Health Organization, and a little uh, scandal that's been brewing for some years, but didn't really talked much about, but I thought it'd be an interesting thing to uh, pop into the conversation since Trump has suspended funding there for the time being. So this is Political Pursuits, the podcast. I'm Lou Ann Anderson. See you on the other side. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters to Political Pursuits, the podcast. I'm your host, Lou Ann Anderson. Glad you stuck with us here. Let me just remind you before we get going, all of that we talked about last uh, segment, especially those numbers, the rankings of New York and how it would change the listings if New York, downstate New York, was listed as its own entity versus lumped in with the entire United States. All that's going to be on our Facebook page, which is Political Pursuits, the podcast, or at Political P Suits. Be sure and take a look at that. Also, um, remember that we're on Twitter at Political P Suits. Email if you have something to say, politicalpursuitspod at gmail.com. Okay. President Trump recently uh, got lots of accolades from many of his supporters. And probably others, even within the international community, if truth be told, they may not ever come. Liberty Tabletop is America's flatware company, the only flatware that's manufactured in the U.S. of A. There are over 38 patterns to choose from. Like a couple of patterns and you can't decide, you can order a sample of each. And check out their website at libertytabletop.com and enter the promo code BEN for 15% off all flatware. Just in time for you to freshen up your holiday table setting with Liberty Tabletop Flatware, manufactured in the United States. They make great wedding and Christmas gifts, too. Flatware that can be passed down for generations. So check out their website at LibertyTabletop.com and enter promo code BEN for 15% off all flatware. LibertyTabletop.com, promo code BEN. Ah, feel the woe with Listerine at BJ's. You can save $2.50 now on Listerine products like Total Care Anti-Cavity Fluoride Fresh Mint Mouthwash or Cool Mint Pocket Packs Fresh Breath Strips at your nearest BJ's location. Experience the feeling of a million germs zapped in seconds with Listerine. Discount available through December 24th. Save now only at BJ's. Clean on it. But when he said that he was going to suspend funding to the World Health Organization based upon their handling and responses in the pandemic here, the COVID-19 pandemic, and uh, specifically related to their relationship with China and how that relationship may have influenced what and when their messages were conveyed. But... There's another interesting side issue to the World Health Organization, and that comes in a subsidiary of it's called the Pan American Health Organization, or PAHO. Pan American Health Organization. Mary Anastasia O'Grady writes columns. She's an op-ed writer for the Wall Street Journal, and her beat is largely Central America, South America, 
Cuba and the related islands in that in that periphery. And a week or so ago, she had a column, and she said that it's great that Trump is um, unhappy with the World Health Organization and is going to take a good look. It needs to happen, but if we're going to take a look at the World Health Organization, we also need to take a look at its Western Hemisphere subsidiary, the Pan American Health Organization. This organization, funded by the World Health Organization, funded by the United States, it has a, a history of supporting anti-democratic regimes seeking to destabilize legitimate governments by weakening public health rather than strengthening it. Think about that. They're using public health to come in and try and delegitimize legitimate governments. Now, it gets more nefarious than that. Havana boasts about sending medical personnel abroad as if it runs a charity, but governments pay Havana for the Cuban health care workers, who then, the workers, receive a miserly stipend from the regime. It leaves them in poverty, and meanwhile the dictatorship profits keeping the lion's share of the income. This is human trafficking. It violates international law and the laws by which who is theoretically governed. Cuban medics who have escaped the program are currently in federal court suing Pejo. They allege that when Brazilian law and congressional opposition got in the way of launching this scheme, Pejo stepped in as a financial intermediary to launder illegal payments of a secret Cuba-Brazil agreement. So, basically, Cuba was afraid that Brazil wasn't going to honor making the payments in this little scam for these doctors, and the Pan American Health Organization, the United States tax-funded tax funded health organization, got in to be an intermediary. Brazilian journalists were able to win release of some documents that um, include the minutes of a February 2017 meeting in Havana between Cuban, Brazilian, and Pejo officials. The minutes outline how the three-party strat strategized a response to the legal challenges that have been filed in Brazil by Cuban workers demanding to receive their full pay as Brazilian law. The Cuban Vice Minister of Health expressed concern about potential legal pitfalls for Havana's money-making arrangement. They were afraid that Brazil wasn't going to honor this and demanded that Brazil find a solution that would fulfill the commitment it had under this agreement. So according to the minutes, what would happen? Oh, the Pejo Legal Council. Pejo, remember who funds them? Acting on behalf of Pejo committed to enforcing the commitments Brazil had made under the agreement. So they were committed to enforcing payments by Brazil for human trafficking to the Cuban regime. It's just an ugly thing. Ugly, ugly. And in addition to how these workers are treated, and I'm going to get a little bit more into that in a minute, there's also another outrageous aspect because it turns out that um, the health outcomes for the regions are also dramatically impacted, as in diminished. Cuban doctors who have escaped from various assignments around Latin America testified at a State Department event in 2019 in New York. One doctor said that when no patients visited the clinic in Bolivia, where she worked, her boss in Havana instructed her to invent names and illnesses to provide statistics. Logically, this created an illusion that Cuban medicine was serving a great need abroad and curing the sick. Well, that sounds kind of familiar. Like if you were a country and you were really trying to up your image, make your game look a little bit better, maybe you send needed medical supplies and equipment all over the country, all over the world, only for those recipients of your generosity to find out that half of the test kits you sent don't work, that the equipment that you send is old, rotted, you know, some of them have 
nasty insects in them because they've been sitting someplace for so long. But at the same time, you're doing this, all of this, and publicizing, patting yourself on the back for doing it, and any compliant media, which there's plenty of them, are going along saying, oh, aren't you such a great, you know, world, world uh, companion? And it's nothing but a ruse. So that's what we have here. Cuba, China, peas, pod, you get the drift. So anyway, we're going through here and... Um, Doctors were told to requisition medical supplies and pharmaceuticals for patients who didn't exist. This allowed uh, Pharmacoba, which is a state-owned pharmaceutical company, to sell its products to host countries. So they're generating business for a Cuban company that it can make money off of these, these host um, countries. Pharmacuba also collects a fee as an intermediary between medical suppliers in China, India, and Russia and its clients in Latin America. When products arrived, the doctor said the Cuban medics were instructed to destroy them. Another doctor said spreading regime propaganda was part of his job. So you've got this subsidiary of the World Health Organization that is basically the overseer of corrupt scams down in South America and aiding the and abetting the Cuban government in scamming these people, basically shaking these governments down for money. And in doing so, they're running a human trafficking operation, whereas they're exploiting these doctors that are coming out of Cuba and aside the, the human cost of exploiting these doctors, they're also impacting, negatively impacting health outcomes in these countries. Most of these countries have their own challenges to begin with. They don't need this kind of crap coming in. So this is what a portion of our funds to the World Health Organization are financing. But I wanted to tell you, as I read this from Mary Anastasia Grady, She's talking about a lot of things that have happened in the past. And so I thought, well, I want to take a look at this for myself and kind of see, you know, if I can find some other reports about these doctors and what they've gone through. And I came through an interesting piece from Thomas Reuters Foundation that was a year ago, April 26, 19. And it's talking about how that there was a, there had just been a, a conference in which the United States officials called on all nations to stop using Cuba's medical missions, which send doctors around the world saying that Cuba refused to pay the medical staff and held them against their will. It goes on and says it characterizes Cuba's international medical missions as a form of human trafficking and modern slavery. The Caribbean island nation has a respected health service and generates major export earnings by sending more than 50,000 health workers to more than 60 countries. But it came under criticism in Brazil when President Bolsonaro last year called the Cuban doctors slave labor. And Cuba recalled its 8,300 medical workers stationed there. Don't you know that Trump... And Bolsonaro have a lot to talk about when they start chatting about the World Health Organization and Peho in specific. Ramona Matos, a Cuban doctor, said she worked with medical missions in Bolivia and Brazil where Cuban security agents took away doctors' passports and other identification. We were undocumented, she said. If anything happened to us, we got hurt, we died, nobody would know our identity. Nearly all of the doctors' earnings were sent back to Cuba where they were frozen in accounts that they could not access until they completed their missions. We were basically being trafficked and we were victims and exploited by the Cuban government. The State Department, according to this from a year ago, is analyzing where Cuban missions are practicing, which is in at least 66 countries. U.S. government also is publicizing its criticisms of the Cuban medical issues so that host countries can't say they weren't aware that this human trafficking was occurring. And so across the Americas, there are many countries participating in these programs. And it's not like, as we talked before, about the health outcomes. It's not like they're getting anything out of it. Their people are getting anything out of it. It's the Cuban government. They're the only ones who are, are benefiting from this. And so, anyway, this is something I'm also going to put up on Facebook. Ileana Rose Layton 
who used to be a congresswoman down in South Florida. She had a real good uh, column just recently in the Miami Herald, an op-ed piece about it, talking about the atrocities of of what's going on. So I'm going to put all this up on our Facebook page because I think it's something that as we go on talking more about the World Health Organization, I think it's something that people need to be aware of to just even give a little broader context to what this organization is and the fact that it would be potentially as insidious in its workings and pandering to China that's really probably not anything new compared to what we're seeing happening down in South America as well. So that will all be up on Facebook. Meanwhile, we're going to take one more quick break and come back and wrap up talking a little bit about um, colleges and how the pandemic is affecting them and something else out of uh, Texas here at Baylor University. This one's just going to kind of make your blood boil. So stick with me, Political Pursuits, the podcast, Lou Ann Anderson. Be right back. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters Welcome back to Political Pursuits, the podcast. I'm your host, Lou Ann Anderson. So glad you stuck with us. And we're going to wrap up today's episode with um, a little talk about higher education. Every day when we do one of these podcasts and I get ready to post it, I give it a name. And this morning when I was thinking about what am I going to call this, I thought, and kind of looking at the overall what we've talked about with New York and governments, local governments having their issues, and we're talking about the World Health Organization, specifically the Pan-American Health Organization subsidiary and its corruption, I thought, well, pandemic shines light on financial ineptitude corruption. Kind of fit the bill of what we would be talking about today. And in going through, I had one last topic that I wanted to bring up today And it would seem we're kind of um, going back to maybe the financial ineptitude, but also just the greed and ego, institutional egoism that can happen in institutions reacting to the COVID-19 virus. And specifically what I'm talking about are Texas universities. But what's happening in Texas universities, you know, trust me, is no different from what's happening across the country. Uh, Texas Tribune had a great article here just a day or two ago that was talking about Texas universities are getting millions in federal money to offset coronavirus, corona losses. It won't be enough, officials say. Wow, and that's considered news. Okay, Texas officials closed down campuses in early March and are losing millions of dollars as they pay students back for house housing, parking, and other unused services. They're stealing themselves against the financial impact from a list of losses related to the new virus. It's everything cancellation of spring athletics, millions of dollars in reimbursements for unused services like housing or parking, voided study abroad programs that were over before they began. Last week, through the federal stimulus bill known as CARES Act, Liberty Tabletop is America's flatware company, the only flatware that's manufactured in the U.S. of A. There are over 38 patterns to choose from. Like a couple of patterns and you can't decide, you can order a sample of each. And check out their website at libertytabletop.com and enter the promo code BEN for 15% off all flatware. Just in time for you to freshen up your holiday table setting with Liberty Tabletop Flatware, manufactured in the United States. 
They make great wedding and Christmas gifts, too. Flatware that can be passed down for generations. So check out their website at LibertyTabletop.com and enter promo code BEN for 15% off all flatware. LibertyTabletop.com, promo code BEN. The federal government started sending funding to the Texas higher education institutions. Texas University administrators say the loss will not be enough to offset the enormous and unexpected losses incurred this school year and into the coming semesters. Wow. And nobody else, no other institution anywhere in this country is having to deal with those same enormous and unexpected losses. So maybe that headline that's annoying about crisis hit women and minorities hit hardest. Maybe this should be crisis occurs. Higher education, the biggest victim. Anyway, in early March, university officials across the state began canceling in-person instruction and moving all classes online as the virus threat swelled. The cost of reimbursing students for on-campus services like housing is expected to be massive, though quantifying its toll on Texas institutions is kind of a moving target. This is according to Leyland Copeland, who is a spokesperson for the Texas A&M University System. Texas A&M actually encompasses 11 different campuses. This federal relief won't make us whole, Copeland said, but it's better than nothing. Texas post-secondary institutions will receive about a billion dollars of the nearly $14 billion designated by Congress for higher education nationwide, according to a tally from John Cornyn's office. So $14 billion is designated nationwide. Texas is getting $1 billion. Yikes, I better be careful when I'm talking about Andrew Como being the resource pig that seems like we're getting a pretty significant i'm not i would question how uh, proportional that is more than a quarter of that one billion dollar haul will be shared between not surprisingly texas a&m and university of texas systems texas a&m's flagship campus and college station will receive nearly 40 million, half of which is earmarked for emergency cash grants for students. Now remember that. So half of it is kind of an emergency slush fund that they have to evidently grant on an as-needed basis. The other roughly 20 million is free to cover whatever losses the university needs to plug, but it just barely covers what A&M has already paid back to students for a month in, of closures. Spokesperson for Texas A&M University said the school has thus far lost $19.5 million in refunding on-campus housing, dining, and parking. But that number is only a snapshot of the losses because it does not encompass other lost revenue. Texas A&M, like many other schools, canceled spring athletic events, which means a loss of ticket and concession sales that would normally help bring in revenue for the school. Refunds for canceled uh, spring and summer study abroad programs were sent out in early March. So she says that right now the 19.5 million is their starting point, but it doesn't cover the projected losses through the summer and beyond. Okay, UT system got 172.5 million for its 14 institutions. UT Austin flagship will get 31 million and that's wrapped up mostly in issuing refunds for housing, meal, parking and recreation fees. As of April 1, UT Austin had issued 22.1 million dollars worth of refunds for housing. Students saw an average of 25.30 credited to their accounts. But not every school is reimbursing in the same way. University of North Texas in Denton has issued checks totaling $5.2 million to reimburse students for housing. But the university is not reimbursing students for meal plans or any other services. Dining refunds will be offered as credits. UNT will receive $29 million from the CARES Act. That dining refund as a credit, that is really a crock because My daughter went to UNT. They are only required to live in the dorm for the first year. 
So if her in her first year, she would have lived in the dorm. Her year got interrupted by this virus. Assuming she was going back the next year, assuming there was something to go back to the next year, she ain't going to be living in the dorm. But at the same time, you're going to have that money tied up in that credit. And so either you let it go and the university wins, you lose, or else you inconvenience yourself by going, making a point to go to some on-campus dining facility that in normal times you would never set foot in. But that's what you have to do in order to use up this credit. I think that's a real backhanded way of going about um, getting to stiff these kids on that money. Some students at different universities are feeling slighted. Angel Flores, a 21-year-old student at UTEP, was living on, in an on-campus dorm before it was shut down. Got, he got a $1,000 housing refund but does not feel like it was a fair trade for all he lost. His tuition covered amenities like libraries and access to a recreation center. I wonder if it had a lazy river or a climbing wall that he now cannot use. And he wishes he was getting at least partial payment on that. So why are we paying for things that we're not using, Flores asked. I think you could say that about many degrees. I feel like they owe us, the students, more. All we have right now is our mouths and a computer and none of the resources we signed up for. The U.S. Department of Education advised colleges to use their discretion when portioning out funding, stipulating only that half of each institution's total funding must go to emergency grants for students dealing with coronavirus-related disruptions such as housing displacement, displacement or job loss. And I would point out that in that job loss, a lot of those job losses are probably these jobs that kids have on campus. Now, some of them are legit and they're functions that very much need to happen. Some of them are just kind of boondoggle jobs to give the kids money and help keep that, that racket of higher ed going. It's hard to know exactly how much of a hit higher education nationwide will take, said John Fansmith, uh, the Director of Government Relations for American Council of Education. ACE has already asked since CARES was signed for an additional $46.4 billion to plug the holes left by the shutdown, deeming the original $14 billion woefully inadequate. That's that $14 billion that was nationwide. Part of the problem that schools are finding now is that they did the right thing and they did it quickly without long-term or even short-term consideration of the financial impact. They're losing revenue substantially. They're spending money in ways they never anticipated. Schools have moved pretty quickly and aggressively to do the right thing by their students, and now they are struggling. Oh, martyrs. Okay, to their credit, some universities like Baylor, we talked about this in a podcast last year. Last year. What am I saying last year? I've had this brain fog thing kind of going with this health issue. It's getting better, but excuse those little regressions there. Last week we talked about Baylor, gave them their due credit about um, cutting some of their budget. That's a good thing. Hopefully more are going to... Are more are going to, to follow suit in that. Private institutions, they're going to get a hard hard um, part of this deal because smaller and more tuition-dependent private schools face a serious threat by way of significantly, potentially unparalleled declines in enrollment numbers because this is going to be like a lot of other things. It's probably going to take people a little while to get confidence to coming back and utilizing some type of good or services. Using conservative estimates, ACE, they say that they estimate a 15% enrollment drop nationwide next fall, including a 25% decline in international student enrollments, costing schools $23 billion. Well, if that international student enrollment decline includes some of those people coming over here from China, yay. Enrollment is an immediate concern, he says, but it's a concern that you'll carry with you for the next four or five years as that one class moves on up. And here we go, college bureaucrat, they can't stay away from it. And it raises questions about equity and diversity. Who's in the classroom? There are all sorts of ways this can play out. 
They can't leave it alone. Pandemic may also disproportionately affect smaller schools, which are often without large endowments or cash reserves on hand. Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches has issued around $9 million in refunds to its fewer than 13,000 students. Added to the loss of revenue from canceled athletics and the cost of moving classes online, the university president, Scott Gordon, estimates that a $12 million total loss will happen for the university. So far, the university has seen $10 million from the federal government, half of which, remember, is reserved in that contingency fund for student emergency needs. That's not money we can put into the university to fill holes. He said he is holding out hope for another stimulus bill, but this isn't just a rainy day. It's a downpour. At some point, we need to start building those reserves back up. And same memo to them, to Mayor de Blasio, you need to also start looking at how to cut your costs. The gravy train days are over. This pandemic breaks my heart, the havoc it's wreaking on our economy, but when it comes to Areas like higher ed, if it helps in some way to get some serious reform going there, bring it on. One last thing, it's still about colleges. It's not about the pandemic, but it is going to uh, probably help a little blood to boil. This is from Breitbart just uh, over the weekend. Baylor University denies official recognition for Turning Point USA chapter. You all know Turning Point USA. That's Charlie Kirk's outfit. Baylor University in Waco, Texas has denied official recognition for the Turning Point USA club on campus. The school hasn't provided any reasoning for its decisions. According to students there, they've been trying to get this club off the ground for months. Baylor has provided little communication and hasn't explained its decision to deny the recognition. The Baylor chapter president, Oliver Mintz, told Breitbart that the school's, the school's student activities department said that it would provide the conservative students with a list of reasons as to why the group was denied approval, but that the students have not received a response to date. According to email correspondence obtained by Breitbart, the chapter president had first requested the list of reasons for the group's denial back on December 17th. On February 14th, he again reached out to the Student Activities Office via email, this time contacting the Director of Student Activities, Matt Burchett, to request the information. Mintz told Breitbart that, he, Breitbart that he still has not received a reply from that. On February 26th, he reached out to Burchett one more time. Good morning, Mintz wrote in his follow-up email to Burchett. I'm sending this email to see if you had received my email from about two weeks ago. Again, Mintz has yet to receive a reply. So, persevering as a good conservative would, he then emailed an assistant director in the student activities department who replied one week later on March 9th stating that she would, quote, circle back with Matt. The student says that he has yet to receive a follow-up email from the assistant director regarding her circling back. He also added that in the meeting they had with student activities where the department officially denied the group for approval, the directors were unable to provide us with any reason for the denial other than a vague reference to TPUSA's so-called methodology. What the hell does that mean? They also brought up concerns about the leadership of the organization. Once our current leadership and founders graduate by saying that they were worried about a drop-off and decline with future leadership. This could be said about any club on campus, whether it's the knitting club or a political organization. No, no kidding. This denial was biased, plain and simple, Mint says. However, we are looking forward to productive dialogue with them in the near future to provide them with more information that could help them make a well-informed decision. We firmly understand that Baylor, as a private university, has the absolute right to deny us a charter. However, by denying us, they are showing their true colors, that they are against free speech and against conservative values being presented on campus. Baylor, not surprisingly, didn't immediately respond to Breitbart News' request for comment. All I can say to that is thank God there are some adults 
on the Baylor campus. They just don't happen to be people, it would seem, in administration. And with that, we're going to call it quits for today. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you next time here on Political Pursuits, the podcast. I'm Luann Anderson. In these next days, just be sure, stay safe, stay well, and we'll see you soon. Texas, the United States, we will get through this. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Keep your eyes open to make sure you don't miss it. See you next time. Liberty Tabletop is America's flatware company, the only flatware that's manufactured in the U.S. of A. There are over 38 patterns to choose from. Like a couple of patterns and you can't decide, you can order a sample of each. And check out their website at libertytabletop.com and enter the promo code BEN for 15% off all flatware. Just in time for you to freshen up your holiday table setting with Liberty Tabletop Flatware, manufactured in the United States. They make great wedding and Christmas gifts, too. Flatware that can be passed down for generations. So check out their website at LibertyTabletop.com and enter promo code BEN for 15% off all flatware. LibertyTabletop.com, promo code BEN.